Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor and uh, podcast host here at Heart. Uh, today, we have a sponsored podcast. Uh, the podcast is sponsored by Boehringer Ingelheim Lily Alliance, but they did have no influence at all over the contents, uh, selection of speakers, organization of the podcast, or any associated educational material. So we do thank them very much for their sponsorship. And we are delighted today to be talking to Dr. Carolyn Lam from Singapore. Carolyn is a world expert in heart failure, particularly HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And we have a lovely discussion all about the latest in diagnostics, in wearables, the latest in therapies, and also how we can improve our representation of women in heart failure trials in the future. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast. We have a really special guest today who is joining us, Professor Carolyn Lam. Carolyn, for those who don't know you, and I don't think there are many listening, but for those who haven't met you before virtually or in person, could you maybe introduce yourself for the Heart audience? Um, who are you? Where do you work? And what do you do there? Sure. I'm a heart failure cardiologist from Singapore. I'm a clinical trialist, passionate about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, women and heart disease, and stumbled into being a co-founder of an AI for echocardiography company called Us2 AI. I suppose I should mention, since I'm sitting on the other side of the mic for once, <laughs> that I also run the Circulation on the Run podcast. So it's with a lot of admiration and gratitude that I'm joining your podcast today, James. I think uh, this is, it's really wonderful. Thank you for having me. Not at all. And please, audience uh, members, if you don't already subscribe to the Circulation on the Run podcast, it's one of the OG podcasts. It's been around for a while. One of my favorites, um, you should definitely go and have a listen. There's lots of uh, very similar stuff uh, that you find here on the Heart Podcast that you'll enjoy over there as well. But we got you here to talk today about heart failure, Carolyn, and particularly uh, sort of an update really in where we are with heart failure diagnosis and biomarkers. Can you give us a sort of picture of the landscape of where we are there? Is there anything that's changed over the last uh, couple of years about sort of accurate diagnosis and also prognostication of heart failure? Oh, so much has changed. In fact, I feel like we almost should change the name from heart failure to heart success, perhaps, you know. So recently, we've had a number of breakthroughs, I think, in the diagnostic field. The first thing is, for the first time, we have a universal definition of heart failure. That's a combined effort across multiple societies around the world to finally come together to define heart failure. And in this definition, it importantly encompasses the clinical syndrome of heart failure, which means typical symptoms and signs, but also introduces for the first time a biomarker. And that would be the natriuretic peptides as part of the definition of heart failure. Now, this is remarkable because there's also the universal definition of myocardial infarction that everyone is familiar with now. And recall that because it started defining myocardial infarction based on a biomarker troponin, we now completely take it as Bible truth, if I may, that troponins 
are essential for the diagnosis of myocardial infarction and may even have changed and evolved our definition of myocardial infarction based on it. So who knows what's going to happen now that we have a universal definition of heart failure that includes the natriuretic peptides. So that is super cool. Now for prognostication, the biomarker that's most commonly used still to this date is again the natriuretic peptides. I think the only gap in knowledge that we have in using biomarkers is do we really use it to guide treatment? And if we do sort of using it as the target, right. can we improve wow. outcomes? Now that's where I think there's still equipoise because the one trial that looked at it, guide um, uh, HIV, it was a big trial, uh, really was neutral. And there were a lot of reasons that we could postulate that it was neutral. So we don't know about that, but then for the diagnosis and the prognostication, biomarkers are really a big part of it now. And what would you say about the role of wearables for either for diagnosis or perhaps more for predicting deterioration, predicting hospital admission, that kind of thing? I know you've been active in this space of digital cardiology as well. Indeed, remote monitoring has always been a dream and a focus in heart failure management, right? Because we have these patients who have a chronic syndrome and they keep getting hospitalized and re-hospitalized. So isn't it wonderful if we could remotely monitor them, anticipate that they're going to deteriorate, and ask them to escalate therapy to keep them out of hospital? Now, uh, there have been numerous attempts at it that have not, frankly, been a slam dunk. But recently, there has been more and more hope in the area. Uh, one of them is with the pulmonary artery invasive monitor, the CardioMEMS monitor. Uh, that has shown impressive results that if CardioMEMS is used um, and patients can actually receive better treatment, and that's mainly, frankly, more diuretics and vasodilators that targets the CardioMEMS and keeps them out of hospital. Uh, so that's good. Um, there's also coming up that was recently published, Manage HF, and I may be a bit biased because I was involved in that, but it's a multimodality physiologic monitor. So really cool. It's for patients who already have a device like an ICD or CRT device, um, and it can be upgraded with this multi-physiologic marker that takes into account whether the patient's developing an S3, whether the patient is sleeping with a, you know, more incline or not, whether their activity status is um, slowing down, whether they're having uh, respiratory increases, heart rate differences. So it really puts all of this together in what's what was called a heart logic score. And interestingly, that too seems to really accurately predict that a patient is going to decompensate. And um, hopefully with that leeway, we can actually intensify treatment and therefore keep them out of hospital. So all this is, is really fascinating. And if I may too, in the device world, because the diagnosis now of heart failure requires both biomarkers and imaging, right? Because after making the diagnosis of heart failure, phenotype, which type of heart failure, because that dictates our treatment, in other words, is it have PEF, is it have REF, is it have mildly reduced ejection fraction? With that, we need echo. 
And I think there's also, you know, huge advances in that area with point of care ultrasound and with AI enabled facilitated diagnosis of heart failure. So all of which I think is it, it really bodes well, especially at the time now when we've got new treatments. Exactly. And just briefly, tell me about the AI enhanced echo. Is this to allow, should we say, non-specialists to make the diagnosis or is it simply um, something that helps to extract features from the images to make a, a more accurate diagnosis? Tell me a little bit about that, uh, either your own product or more generally the sort of direction of travel of that area. Wow, actually, both of it, you've articulated it so well. So first, there's the hardware and the software. In the hardware arena, it's really nice to see that there's point-of-care handheld devices, right? They're not these bulky, big cart-based instruments anymore. The small little things that you could even plug into your smartphone and do a quick scan of the heart. So you need that kind of good hardware to be able to democratize echocardiography so that diagnosis can be made in the place where patients present most often, which is primary care. Right. It's right. not to the cardiologist a lot of the time, right? And now the software part of it. So the AI now, there's AI to guide novices, to put the probe in the right place to get the right images. And there's AI to read the images, uh, basically just to automate the measurements and to suggest if they are abnormal and to put together, frankly, the criteria that we publish about and all of us have a bit of trouble remembering. It just simply just automates that and it's kind of alerts you, hey, the left atrium is big or uh, the ejection fraction doesn't look normal for this age and sex and so on. So, yeah, both of those. Uh, it's a tremendously exciting time. Sounds really fascinating and it's definitely an area for people to keep on their radar for sure. Let's pretend we've made the diagnosis of heart failure the first time, should we say, presenting with symptoms of heart failure with a, an elevated NT pro BNP. Let's talk about lifestyle changes. I know everybody wants to jump straight into drug therapy normally, but um, you already talked about investigating the patients with imaging and trying to understand what's caused the, the heart failure. But let's just talk in general terms about lifestyle changes that you as a practicing cardiologist recommend to patients uh, when they've just been diagnosed? What are the things that they should do and the things that they shouldn't do? Right. So with lifestyle, first, we need to be very careful that we're not talking about the acutely decompensated heart failure patient in the emergency department who, you know, can't finish a sentence without right. being breathless. Now, no, that, I was talking, there's yeah, no, no, no lifestyle thing to talk exactly. about. Get to the hospital, <laughs> please. Uh, let us make sure you're oxygenating well, hemodynamically stable, getting the water out of your lungs with intravenous diuretics, and so on. But we're talking about, you know, someone who's had the diagnosis is um, maybe out of decompensated state and ambulant and so on. You know what? Exercise. Exercise and cardiac rehabilitation and physiotherapy, all of these things are extremely important for patients with heart failure. So it is not the advice to now stay still, stay home, don't do anything. No, it is please, please get yourself seen by people who are experts in, in exercise prescriptions and be able to do that exercise uh, rehabilitation that actually is a very, very important part of the holistic management. Now, the understanding of the disease pathophysiology is important. There's a lot of controversy these days about salt and whether or not we do need to restrict or don't. Um, unfortunately, 
common senses don't have a huge salt diet suddenly because it precipitates fluid overload and fluid retention. And we see many patients who come in after skipping their diuretics and having a huge sudden load of sodium, like a big pizza or something like that the night before. However, the trials still of low sodium and so have, have not quite panned out. So it, it's controversial, but I still think common sense prevails. And I would tell the patient to be just very careful and moderate in their intake, especially with salt and fluid. Um, and then it's also the common sense uh, things like don't smoke, don't do the things that precipitate heart failure, get vaccinations, flu vaccinations, because um, just common colds and flus often precipitate heart failure. So there's lots of things that we can do lifestyle-wise. And let's jump into drug therapies as well. Any recent or upcoming ongoing trials that are important for the general cardiologist who may not be so on top of the, the field as, as you clearly are? What should we talk about? The, the big four pillars of heart failure management? You go ahead. Tell me what's new and what people should understand. Oh, you just said it. I think the main message is it's a really good time to be a heart failure cardiologist. We have more arrows in our quiver than we've ever had. So first, in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you know, um, I, I would call the oldest kid in heart failure where we thought we had maxed out on treatment when we had the triple therapy of ACE, ARB, MRAs, and beta blockers. Well, guess what? We've got the fourth now, right? The, the SGLT2 inhibitors. And if I may, the speed at which we established this fourth pillar is just totally astounding. Just two huge, robustly positive trials in DAPA-HF and EMPRA-REDUCE, and, and just, a, just a wealth of experience that came with it. I think the biggest message is SGLT2 inhibitors are not a diabetes medicine mm -hmm. anymore. They are a heart failure therapy, you know, and of course, also uh, treat diabetes. Right. But we, I think we really need to get, get that into to our heads now as cardiologists, that this is a heart failure foundational therapy in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. But even more astounding to me, who's focused my entire career on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, the SGLT2 inhibitors have also become, I think, the first class of therapy that will receive a strong recommendation in updated guidelines for HEPPEP. Um, we have now two robustly positive outcomes trials, and they are the Emperor Preserve trial with empagliflozin and the Deliver trial with dapagliflozin, both really positive in the primary outcomes of cardiovascular death or a heart failure event uh, with you know combined about a 20% reduction in this important composite outcome with these medications. First time in history we've had a positive trial in a resoundingly positive trial in HEPPEF. And so um, I think, you know, really anticipate that guidelines are going to be updated rapidly. Um, and the question I often get now is then, okay, you just said SGLT2 inhibitor with HEPREF. Now you're saying SGLT2 inhibitor with HEPPEF. So who cares about ejection fraction? Right. And right. I would say you're right. In that now, if you were to see a patient 
and you're very sure of the diagnosis of heart failure, you actually don't need to wait for the ejection fraction to start some therapies like diuretics, SGLT2 inhibitors, and things that work across the board in heart failure. However, that does not mean that you don't need to go further and investigate the type of heart failure, the underlying cause, and so on. Remember that when we do any test, let's say cardiac imaging, it's not only for ejection fraction. We also look to make sure that the heart failure is not due to valve disease, pericardial disease, myocardial-specific diseases like amyloid or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, all of which, by the way, have their specific treatments now in things like mavicamptin for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or all the emerging therapies for cardiac amyloidosis. So we do need to investigate further and treat the underlying cause. Yeah, so I think the echocardiography team are not going to be out of work uh, anytime soon. But as you say, it's really interesting advice, isn't it? That let's say you have some symptoms that are highly suggestive and you have a positive NT pro BNP or a regular BNP, just get on and treat while the echo is being yeah. organized and done. Yeah. What about the world of device therapies? Um, anything new out there that uh, that folks should be aware of, Carolyn? Absolutely. Even in HEFPEF, there are device therapies that are still undergoing uh, sort of large-scale trials. One of them is the interatrial septal device. So can you imagine creating a hole between the atria just so that you can offload the left atrial hypertension that occurs because of the underlying filling pressure that's raised in the left side of the heart? So this had one pivotal trial that unfortunately was overall neutral but appeared to have a subset of patients that may potentially benefit. And so there are ongoing trials now actually targeting those subsets of patients, basically who don't have any evidence of pulmonary vascular reactivity or um, even with exercise. So in those patients, um, perhaps the interatrial shunt might still be an option. Um, in the device world, there are all kinds of Treatments for valves, as you know, you know, from mitral clip, we're now doing tricuspid clip and tricuspid procedures, which is really fascinating. And then there's also procedures that address stuff outside of the heart. And I'm very fascinated with splanchnic nerve denervation, very early technology, but really working on the distribution of fluid, intravascular and extravascular, and working on the fact that there are some patients especially it appears obese patients with HEPPEF who may have very uh, poor venous capacitance. And so a splanchnic nerve denervation might help that so that the stress blood volume doesn't increase so quickly and you know put the patient into pulmonary uh, edema. So very interesting, uh, lots going on in that, that field as well. And um, let's address one other big issue that we've talked about before on this podcast. And I know you've covered on on the circulation podcast, and that's the underrepresentation of, of certain patient groups in in pivotal heart failure trials. Let's say over the last twenty years, particularly women. Um, how do you think that has kind of impacted the guidelines where women have maybe been twenty twenty five percent of the patients? And what can we do to improve things going forward? 
Oh my goodness, can we start a whole new podcast? Because I've got so much to say about <laughs> this, you know. No, but thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about it. I do, I do really feel so strongly. I mean, women continue to be underrepresented in our heart failure trials. However, when we did look at um, how we're doing over the last decade, there's been a slight improvement for heart failure, although it's still grossly um, underrepresented. Why it's so important? Well, first of all, uh, we we do have trials like the Paragon trial of Sacubitril-Valsartan versus Valsartan and HEPPEP that have shown remarkable sex interaction in the treatment effect, where women appear to benefit from Sacubitril-Valsartan across a larger ejection fraction uh, range compared to men. We've seen the same phenomenon, for example, with CRT. Uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy in the MEDA trials have also shown a significant sex interaction where women appear to benefit more than men. Now, these are really important observations not to just be swept away because I think that a big Part of it may be that we're using the wrong cutoffs for women versus men. For example, in Paragon, we said that anyone with an ejection fraction, say, above 45 or 50, is preserved. However, a woman, especially an elderly woman who has hypertension, has a higher ejection fraction normally than a man of a similar age. So, a sex-neutral cutoff of 50% could already be reduced for women, you know, whereas it's still normal for men. Right. And why? Because ejection fraction is just a fraction. And it depends how big your numerator and denominator are relative to each other. So if you and I have the same stroke volume, but my heart is smaller because my body is smaller, I am supposed to have a higher ejection fraction. So I think part of it is that. And... And so that's why we see that, you know, we should be treating women, I think, with neurohormonal blockade up to a higher absolute ejection fraction compared to men, because that it's not normal for women. With the CRT, it's the same. We mandated the same QRS duration, same widened QRS duration to give CRT. But for the same reason that women's hearts are smaller, our intrinsic QRS durations are shorter by about 10 milliseconds compared to men. So if you use the same sex-neutral cutoff, there's a lot more dyssynchrony for a woman than a man. And that may explain why we benefit more. But it also says that perhaps the cutoff for QRS prolongation should be lowered for women so that more women can benefit from this therapy. So you see, I do think it's very, very important to account for sex differences. I am hoping for the day that guidelines will embrace that, but I will also admit there's a lot of other factors that come into play when we talk about things like what's a normal EF. Age matters too, ethnicity matters too. Um, and so it becomes more complicated than that. If we account only for women, then what about the age? What about ethnicity yeah. and so on? So we have a long way to go, but I don't think just keeping status quo and not doing anything about it is the way to go. No, it's really fascinating. And I, I just wasn't aware of those 
small differences, but as you say, very important differences, particularly the QRS duration. I'd never even thought of that. So just by definition, as you say, for the trial inclusion, you're excluding a whole bunch of people that, yeah, could potentially benefit. So it's it's good to know that uh, people like you are now in charge of running these trials and hopefully in the future, things will improve across you know, representation for all patient groups. Just to finish off, Karen, is there anything else you'd like to share that is particularly exciting you, getting you passionate about HEFPEF? <laughs> Only just great thanks. I'm sort of sitting back and just can't believe I've got the privilege of being on this show, talking to you, James. It's been really, really nice. And I've actually learned a lot from you just hearing the way you're interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> so in case you hear me on circulation in the run kind of pulling one or two of your lines you'll know why <laughs> fantastic well that's that's very kind and certainly not warranted but um it's been really good to get the lowdown on heart failure particularly hefpef which is an area as you say with a booming therapeutic options sglt2 inhibitors are really changing this space and it's been fascinating and really interesting to chat with you about it so thanks so much for your time thank you thank you